Okay, it's the middle of July 2020, and suddenly Instagram is flooded with photos of a comet visible in the Northern Hemisphere. Me being me, I immediately get excited and hop on the amateur astronomer train. I'm set up on the back of the boat that I work on. I've got binoculars, a camera with a telephoto lens, and all of the internet telling me how to find this comet in the sky. And I can't find it. After 20 minutes of searching, I'm resigned to pack up my gear and go on an adventure throughout the Seattle waterfront to get a better vantage point. Maybe a different angle will help. I initially took a few photos to get my camera settings right, and just for kicks and giggles, I figured I'd search through the images for spotting help before I traversed across the docks and piers to get a better view. I zoomed in on the last picture I took, and there it was, right in front of me. I swore pretty loudly, sorry dock neighbors, and jumped around a little, totally gleeful over this awesome ball of glowing material in the sky. It was an object smaller than the body of water I was floating on, but somehow, made the whole world seem tiny. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. For this episode, I have a guest whose life has been spent looking up into the stars. I'd like to introduce to you all Dr. Martha Hanner, an astronomer who has stories from the moon landing to the comet visible in our sky this past July. Well, I majored in astronomy when I was in college, and I received my PhD in astronomy uh, just a month before the first Apollo astronauts landed on the moon in July of 1969. I remember that day well because we were at the New York City Ballet up in Saratoga, New York. At intermission, they wheeled a large TV onto the stage, and we were all able to watch and listen as Neil Armstrong stepped down the ladder onto the moon. And then the ballet danced the patriotic number, so that's how we celebrated. <laughs> From that moment, Martha would go on to pursue a career centered around comets. After working on the first unmanned spacecraft that went out to Jupiter, I then got a job at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California and that's where I stayed for more than 25 years, in fact. And I specialized in studying comets. So what is a comet? A comet is a dirty ice ball or an icy dirt ball uh, that's typically a few miles in size, although some could be much larger. And comets formed back when the planets formed about four and a half billion years ago. The comets formed at large distances from the sun, where it was cold enough for water and other common molecules to exist as frozen ices. And so that's why these comets had a lot of water ice and carbon dioxide ice and so on, and then a lot of solid grains frozen in. It might seem weird for us on planet Earth, where ice is usually made from water. But if things get cold enough, other molecules can actually turn into ice as well. One of my favorite fun facts about space is that Pluto actually has an ice sheet on its surface made out of nitrogen, which is what most of our Earth's air is made up of. And so astronomers are interested in comets because they preserve a frozen record of that original solar system material. So I like to think of a comet as a frozen time capsule. One fascinating thing that scientists have learned from comets is that they may actually have brought life to our planet. No, I'm not talking about green aliens hitching a ride on a comet like it's a mechanical bull, but I am talking about the building blocks of life. 
There are specific carbon-based molecules in the grass outside, the bug hanging out in the corner of your bedroom, and your own body. After a sample of a comet was brought back to Earth in 2016, it was confirmed that comets did indeed have these molecules in them. So if comets crashed into Earth early on in our history, it makes sense that they would pass those molecules on to us. Have you had any exciting adventures while you've been looking for comets? <laughs> well, of course, you always think that right when you're looking through a telescope, you're going to discover something fantastic. I haven't quite done that, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, one excitement for me was Comet Halley. Comet Halley comes around about once per human lifetime because it orbits the sun about once every 75 to 76 years. It's been recorded in written records every time it's come around since 240 BC. Oh, wow. But it was last visible from Earth in late 1985 in the spring of 1986. They Astronomers organized a worldwide international Halley watch, and a fleet of spacecraft were targeted toward the comet. And so I was on the science team for the European Space Agency's JOTO mission, which zipped past the comet in 1986 at a speed of about more than 40 miles a second, if you can imagine. But it took lots of measurements of the chemistry of, the, of all those gas molecules streaming off the comet and pictures of that comet nucleus. Uh, because when a comet comes around the sun, what happens is if it gets close to the sun, then the sun heats up all the icy surface. And so the icy molecules boil off, we say sublimate, and drag off all the bits of uh, solid grains. So when we actually see a comet from here from Earth, what we're seeing is not that little icy dirt ball that's hidden away. What we see is this huge cloud of glowing gas and light being scattered from all those tiny dust particles and so on. But from the Giotto mission, we could actually get pictures of the comet's nucleus. So I was one of the first people on planet Earth to ever see the nucleus of this comet that had been coming around every 76 years, at least back to 240 BC. What was the feeling in the room when you were seeing that? Oh, it was so exciting. The encounter happened in the middle of the night in the Space Center in Darmstadt, Germany. And they were recording all the data directly from the spacecraft in the building on large computers. But that was just when PCs were coming in. So every experiment team had their own PC and could monitor their own data. So we were monitoring whenever little tiny solid grains hit the front of the spacecraft going through. We were trying to just get a census of how much material was there. And then right after the closest approach of the spacecraft was hit by something maybe a centimeter in size. And so temporarily it was knocked off uh, so that its antenna wasn't pointing at Earth. It recovered. But in the meantime, we all ran into the room where the imaging was. Uh, and there was just a display of just a false color image of all the different brightness levels, and we couldn't see really what it meant. But someone reached up and turned off the color in the TV, and we all gasped because there was this glowing cloud from the dust and gas and this little black nucleus just silhouetted against the glowing cloud, and that was our first view. Did you ever get a good view of the comet? with just your eyes or a telescope? Yes, in the, in the spring of 1986, 
the comet was better viewed from the southern hemisphere. And so I arranged to have an observing run down in Australia at uh, one of their large telescopes. And I had our team just stop everything at 1 a.m. one night, we went out and the comet was directly overhead in the zenith. And so there was this little fuzzy blob with a kind of stubby triangular tail right in the Milky Way and so on. So that was our best view. That's awesome. And so I was involved in other missions after that. One of them was called Stardust. And that was the first space mission to return a small sample from a comet. It was a mission that was designed to be as inexpensive as possible, just a flyby. So on the cheap meant on the fly. We didn't land on the comet or anything like that. But we went past and just opened up a collector and collected samples of of these solid grains and so on as the spacecraft went past. And so I, I went to the launch in 1999 and it was a seven year mission whose success depended on the final one hour. Would you get the sample back safely? And sure enough, the sample capsule returned safely uh, in January 2006. What was amazing to me is when it was, the capsule was opened up in the clean room that the aluminum casing surrounding the sa sample holder was just as shiny as it was seven years earlier before we left. And so this is interesting. This Stardust spacecraft traveled in those seven years a total of four and a half billion kilometers. Wow. And so the question is, how far did we travel? Do you want to guess? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't even know where to start with a guesstimate. <laughs> well, in those seven years, planet Earth and its orbit around the sun went around almost seven times. So all of us on planet Earth traveled more than six and a half billion kilometers. So we oh, actually wow. traveled farther than the spacecraft during that time. <laughs> That's so funny to think about that because when, at least when I think about spacecraft, I'm always like, oh, they're going so far and doing such amazing things. And you forget about the fact that we are also moving and going far and doing amazing things. <laughs> so comet orbits, are they elliptical? I guess I don't know that much about orbiting. Yes, right. Every, everything that's uh, in our solar system is influenced by the sun's gravity. And so Isaac Newton got it all figured out that these are basically elliptical orbits with the sun at one focus, if you're a mathematician here. And so it's simply a slightly squashed circle. So for instance, even our Earth doesn't have quite a circular orbit. It's actually a little closer to the sun in January than it is in July. But uh, most comets have orbits that depart quite a bit from a circle. They're really kind of long, skinny ellipses. Uh, for instance, Comet Halley, when it's farthest from the sun, is out beyond the orbit of Neptune. And that's about where it is now, in fact. So there just was a comet recently visible from our night sky. Do you know any fun facts about Comet Neowise? Uh, yes, a bright comet comes along and visits our part of the solar system oh, maybe once a decade. So it's actually been a while. And Comet Neowise was discovered by an infrared telescope that orbits the Earth, and it's called Neowise, so the comet got named for that, it was discovered earlier this year. And the comet then came in 
and it went closer to the sun than planet Mercury, actually. And then as, as it was coming out, it came to where we could view it from planet Earth. And then it's on its way out, and it's going to be, when it gets to its farthest point in its orbit, it's going to be something like 63 billion miles away. And so it's going to take another 6,800 years, approximately, to go all the way around its orbit and come back for uh, another generation to see. So us personally listening to this podcast now will not be around in 6,000 years. Uh, when is the next comet coming around that listeners might be able to go check out? Uh, yes, well, the comets that come in that are, that are bright often are coming from so far away. They're orbiting the sun at such huge distances that we don't know about them. We don't see them with our telescopes until the orbit of one is somehow perturbed and it comes in toward the sun. So the brightest comets show up something as a surprise. They're usually detected oh, some months before they get to the brightest. However, Comet Halley, with its 75 to 76 year period, will be back for everyone to see in the year 2061. So if you missed it in 1986, uh, better hang around till 2061 and you're going to have a much better view than we had in 1986. And before Martha signed off on our Zoom call, she wanted to give a shout out to all the people who are getting excited about space right now. When I was back uh, as a kid in school, we learned the names of the planets, of course, but they were just little points of light in the sky, kind of distant and so on. And so over the course of my professional lifetime, the planets of our solar system have gone from tiny little points of light to individual worlds that we actually have pictures of and we can measure their properties. Uh, even little Pluto way out there has now had a spacecraft called New Horizons that went past it. But I also think of the people who are just starting out now, who maybe are kids in school and learning about the planets. And what will we know when they become grandparents? We're discovering that many, many, if not most other stars have planets. And we're just developing the types of instruments that can measure something about those planets. But I'm sure that by uh, another 50 years from now, we're going to learn all kinds of exciting things about planets around other stars and whether there are any that are Earth-like. Lots of exciting things still to discover. Yeah. And now for our episode recap. Comets are giant, dirty snowballs that swing around our solar system. Some are predictable, like Halley's Comet, which comes around about every 75 years. But some are a surprise, like when Comet Neowise pops into our sky this July. They all contain information about what our solar system was like billions of years ago when it was forming, though. Scientists have led many expeditions to comets, including ones that photographed the nucleus of the comet or brought back samples from the comet's surface. These expeditions have led to fascinating things like finding the building blocks of life in a comet. Neowise isn't really visible in the night sky anymore. You really need a telescope in an area without light pollution to see it. But if you're still interested in expanding your night sky knowledge, there is a meteor shower happening this week. The Perseid meteor shower happens every year around this time, when our planet orbits into a debris cloud left behind by a comet that travels near Earth every 133 years. When the dust and debris left over from this comet hits our atmosphere, they burn up and create the frequent shooting stars that make up meteor showers. 
The best time to see these shooting stars are when the moon has set from the night sky, making it extra dark, so be sure to check out the moon's schedule and plan your meteor shower viewing around that. In 2020, that means the best time to watch them is after the sun sets and before the moon rises right around midnight. And make sure to come up with some good shooting star wishes! Information in this episode is from Katherine Altwig's 2016 paper, Prebiotic Chemicals, Amino Acid, and Phosphorus in the Coma of Comet 67P. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have happy meteor shower adventures.